head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me for the first time, the TV critic from the TheDailyBugle.net, it's AJ Greenwald. I love it. Do you think that's a good paying gig? Um, I think you have to have really provocative takes. You know what I mean? Like, I think you have to just be like, this is why and just like that is destroying America's families. Listen, I hear that point, but I also want to say that while the Daily Bugle does seem like the essentially like an analog of Alex Jones. Of InfoWars, uh, yeah. They also seem to have exclusive broadcast rights to all the screens in Times Square. That's <laughs> true. So I feel like it's maybe not as like, you know, it also of in Spider- of we're as- talking about Spider-Man No Way Home today on The Watch. We're going to talk about Spider-Man No Way Home, the season finale of yeah. Hawkeye at episodes four and five of Station Eleven. But that is a great point. We could just get into our Spider-Man conversation. I have to admit, after not only did I live in New York for a decade, I worked yeah. in Times Square for quite some time when, I, sure when did. I did some time at MTV. Let me tell you what people do not do. Watch yeah. screens in Times Square. Now, perhaps if they were like a costumed teen vigilante yeah. has been revealed his identity, I'd take a second to look up and be like, oh, damn. The Bugs got the exclusive on Spider-Man's identity. But for the most part, nobody was really checking for it. It was just like you were just psychotically weaving through packs of German tourists. No, it's an incredible glow up for J. Jonah Jameson. I really, that's that's where we should begin our conversation of the biggest movie of 2021. It's just like inspiring for us as one-time bloggers and essentially like, you know, podcasters to see the ceiling isn't there anymore in terms of what's possible for us. You know, we should report live from like massive casualty events in buildings. I feel like that's the next thing for us. I got to ask you this about Jay Jonah. And and this goes for a bunch of uh, characters that we've had thrown into our lives over the last week. Uh Uh-huh. That's just him, right? It's not like a variant. Like, that's just like, but like, I basically, my, my question is, did he always have that mustache? Uh, in, in what? Which version? <laughs> Any of them. What, 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 well, say. Because I gotta say, is, that mustache, yeah. borrowing from H a little bit. You think? <laughs> <laughs> to, to quote Succession? Yeah, I think that was intentional. I, I think the thing you have to understand and just give into and just relax into the time streams of the multiverse is that that is the Tom Holland universe's version of J. Jonah Jameson. Sure, okay. Right, and he's right, right. been there beginning to end. Alts didn't show up in this movie, and it's okay. It's okay. We should, Okay, so we will have an angle on this. First of all, that would be incredible for us. Your intake, we're only going to talk about the media economy as represented <laughs> That's right. in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What's in SEO like film. in the Tom Holland universe? Um, but I, I let's go bigger. Chris and I both saw, along with Much of America, we threw viral caution to the wind That's and right. we went to the theaters uh, separately, although it would have been fun to see it together. Um, the new Spider-Man movie. And I, I want to start here. If, if we're, we're going to, we're going to spoil it, but I feel like that's, that's yeah, okay. So right, spoilers guys? and uh, spoilers also for Hawkeye and spoilers for episodes four and five only of Spatial Evans. This is a spoiler pod. But if you haven't seen the movie and you're going to turn off the podcast and that, or skip ahead, don't do it yet. I just want you to hear me say this because I think that sometimes I get a bad rap as as a as, as a cranky Jonah Jameson-esque scold about things that people love like I'm some sort of like uh, a pleasure grinch sneaking into your houses and stealing your blu-rays of the complete uh, uh infinity saga Chris I saw this movie on Monday mm-hmm. and when it was over my main thought was I wish that Doctor Strange would cast a reckless spell, erase it from my mind, so I could see it for the first time every day this week. I was so happy seeing this movie. It gave me such pleasure and delight. And we're going to get into like ups and downs and things we liked and maybe things that didn't work or whatever. But this was, to me, 
the best case scenario, not just for these Marvel movies or superhero movies in general, but the best case scenario for what we're still talking about when we talk about the theatrical experience. Because does the fact that they have a 3D printer that Tony Stark left in a box that makes magical mystery potions that cures villains, like, is that an, is that an issue for me? Did I bump on that? Not on the first time through, baby. Not when I was sitting in a theater with a bunch of mask-curious people hooting and hollering for <laughs> Tobey Maguire. They were you know what I mean? Into the neckerchief version of masking? That's what they I were had. Just like, they were just like, you know... The good Lord has blessed us with many openings and closings in our bodies. And how many of them can we keep covered at any one time? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, let's let's all be real. It's the holiday season. Also, the so, Adam's apple gets quite chilly in a movie theater sometimes. It's a great point. Sometimes no, you have to lower. No, nothing insulates your Adam's apple like a can 95 mask. <laughs> like the cone-shaped one? Yeah. That, that's, that's like a cod piece for your neck. That's my first and maybe most enduring take on the movie before we before we dive into it. I just was so impressed and so delighted and thrilled. Uh, I think it's one of my, it, it might be one, one of my two or three favorite Marvel movies. I thought it was yeah. just an absolute delight the whole way through. Never checked my phone, never got antsy. And the thing that I think amazed me, and you touched on it just there, is that I, 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 will, I will start this at Force Awakens when I started to feel okay. very conscious of the fact that what we were watching in the present was entirely powered by the nostalgia for mm -hmm. the past. And only a couple of things last long enough to earn the moments that something that No Way Home earned. Um, and Force Awakens was like that. You know, when Harrison Ford shows up and you're just like, holy shit, man. Like, I've been thinking about this character for most of my life. And since then, I think that a lot of the intellectual property franchise filmmaking has tried to tap into that. And I'm sure we will see a lot of it coming in the next year. I'm sure Thrones, I'm sure there will always be like, whether it's textual nods to the thing it's based on or literally characters appearing. But when I was watching Spider-Man, I just remembered like, these are supposed to be well-told stories. And, mm -hmm. and I, I actually, I honestly felt like a kid paging through a comic book at hyper speed because I couldn't wait to get to the next panel. And that's like, that's a pretty powerful, powerful trick to pull. No Doctor Strange. I think that the movie did something with tone and spirit that is incredibly, it's hard to articulate. It's going to be hard for us to, to capture in words, but it was, I think it's incredibly difficult just to pull off the way that they did. For it to be breathlessly fun, in no way self-serious, but emotional in ways that did not necessarily feel manipulative, because it was self-conscious in a way that wasn't winking. It was self-conscious in a way that was almost bashfully smiling and shrugging. Like, this is our metier. This is our lane. This is what we do. We tell these types of stories, mm -hmm. and we all know we're going to keep making them, and we all know you're going to keep watching them. But that's okay, too. You know, it wasn't embarrassed by its self-referentiality. I don't yeah. know if I made up that word. Um, it was delighted by it. And this is... To me, this is the most surprising thing from the 10,000-foot view that we're, that we're currently on about, about the movie. Over the last two years, you and I have had to, had many reasons to, but also, you know, it, it's, it's been what, it's come across the transom to talk about a multiverse. Well, what does it mean? And often what we talk about is either kind of nerdsplaining to get people up to speed if there's, you know, or to get you up to speed as to what these different variants I'm are. Like, what what mustache does this guy have? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You're really, really hung up on that. <laughs> if they were all wearing masks, like some of the people in the theater, it wouldn't have been an issue. We wouldn't have known what was on his face. But also, uh, you know, talking about multiversal storytelling as a great fix for these corporations and the bind they find themselves in is they want to continually find ways to mine the content and also monetize it and diversify it and just keep doing it, right? And we've said before, well, you know, DC wishes that it had done something as artfully architected as the MCU, but at the same time, they're pretty cool with having six Jokers, like, because people like the Joker. So yeah. what's the big deal? And we think of it often in terms of, um, yeah, just another way to get people's interest, clicks, and dollars. And even when we were talking about the not-at-all-well-kept secrets of this movie, that it was often in the same context, like, well, you know, Feige broke out the checkbook, and he got everybody back, and people are going to be excited to see it, and we're going to get the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man meme or whatever. At no point in that did I think about what 
an open-hearted point of view about multiversal storytelling might bring. And this may sound grandiose, but I, I really felt it while watching this movie that the stakes issue with comic books, that stuff always is just going to get rebooted and no one ever really dies, shouts to Pharrell and all of that. And Chewbacca. The, 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 <laughs> seriously. The multiversal piece of it, in, as, as portrayed in this movie, really, really spoke to me because what it suggested was all the stuff is going to keep happening in much in the same way that we human beings mostly repeat our mistakes and rarely deviate and rarely change and rarely learn. But if you keep trying, if you keep, keep running at it, something might change. You might get a better shot. You might redeem yourself or someone else might, whether it's your actual children or nephew or your multiversal counterpart might get a different run at it. And that really, I found that very emotional in a very surprising way. And that speaks to something else that I think was at the heart of what made this movie really great, which is that it was kind. Mm -hmm. It took all of these characters who have had a good run, bad run, aborted run, whatever. And in addition, all these actors who, and no one has sympathy for actors. They're all great, high-paid high actors. I have sympathy for Reese Okay, fair. <laughs> great point. But all of them agreed to be a part of a machine that maybe they didn't fully understand, and it worked out in varying degrees for them. And then they all got another turn. And they got another turn in the hands of filmmakers who were very, very generous and thoughtful about each of them as and performers. A star. And, and a star as characters. very generous, too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so, and, and we'll talk more about him, I'm sure, in a moment. But like, what this movie did with Andrew Garfield and with that Spider-Man and those Spider-Man movies, which I barely engage with and I don't think are thought of particularly fondly, it was really sweet, you know? And it was felt, and it was felt on two levels. One, for a character that I previously had no necessarily, I had no affection for, but also for movies that I didn't particularly have any affection for. But they meant something to someone. And this movie had a big enough heart and, you know, numerous metallic arms to wrap around all of that and still wrap it up in a very clever, satisfying package. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that I'll, I'll come at it from the more of the storytelling perspective, and I'd love to get okay. your thoughts on some of this stuff. I just think this is the blueprint for how you're supposed to do these things. And you're not going to get lucky enough every time out to have Spider-Man, which means so much to so many people, to have a, a character whose inherent charm and in the mm -hmm. point of the character is that he is street level and we'll talk about like what street level storytelling is for hawkeye anyway but like yeah he's doing his best is a new york kid who's got some friends and is trying to figure his shit out that's like basically the character and he's trying to help people um that was like you when you worked at mtv by the way it's yeah just... i mean just like you should have watched me on times square but the way in which they go about telling this story i think should serve as a blueprint I, I would, if I was making MCU TV, I would be watching this movie and studying it. If I was making future films, I would be studying it. I, I think you and I have gone through the last couple of you know years, and we've been quick to point out when we've noticed the seams showing, right? Like we noticed, like oh, I think that was a reshoot, or I think that this was added later, or they decided after the fact that it should connect to this, or you could tell that this actor was maybe not there on the same day as the other actor in the scene or something like that. And there's a little bit of that in this movie that I would hazard a guess happen. But it's so fleet of foot and it is so deeply invested in the emotional thematics of the story. You know, this idea of fate, this idea of, you know, why we do the things we do and whether or not you keep doing them, even if you know you have like a 90% chance of failure like you were alluding to earlier. And all of the MacGuffins and all of the side quests and all of the other distractions that happen in this movie still ultimately are going towards that one point. Yes. It's like a beautiful pyramid. You know what I mean? And it, it's like you watch a lot of this stuff and it's like, we have to go to this other planet to find a transponder to, to crack the code of this thing that happened two episodes ago so that we can then move on and find out who this mysterious big bad is that we will reveal right at the end. You know, and mm -hmm. that... that is something that I think you and I are both really, really, really getting tired of. This was just the antithesis to that. This was like actually really pure storytelling that takes you back to those like kind of slack jawed moments when you were a kid watching, watching Goonies or watching Raiders of the Lost Ark or watching things where you're like, I am going along on this adventure and I am going along on it because I see something of myself in it. 
I love that. It, that's the word I was going to use too. It was pure. It was pure in a way that we've galaxy brained our way out of over the last few years. And maybe it's, there's a lot of things that go into that ability to, to be pure. But I think that at its heart, it's what you said. It's that at no point in these three movies are they about anything other than this kid trying to do his best. He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to do his best. And a lot of catastrophic things happen along the way. Maybe planning a massive multiversal end battle at a construction site of a national monument. You know, certain things might be, you might want to rethink or just like maybe do some drafts in the notes app before you commit. But that's essentially what these movies are about. And we've gotten so far down the path in the MCU and in what people expect and what the and what the people making it expect us to be expecting, so they feel like they have to zag even before they've zigged. And this is what happens with comic books too, by the way. I mean, there's, I think we probably said it at the time in a podcast that like once they reached Endgame, that version of those stories was done. They can't go back and do it all for the first time again. So now what? And so part of the now what has been what comic books did also, which is let's just muddy the waters. Let's have more characters, more versions of characters. Let's just keep, let's break it down into bite-sized bits instead of serving one big meal. And I think that served them well from a corporate standpoint. But again, we'll talk about Hawkeye in a minute, but like the motivations of the, I thought one, but then two, and then ending up being like five main characters of that show Mm -hmm. are so convoluted and bizarre and just difficult to even grasp. Well, it never is in this. And I think that the, I mean, there's a lot of credit um, to be passed around here and I think we we should run through it. But one thing that I did come away thinking was very curious what Kevin Feige feels about this movie and the phenomenon. He's a producer on it. It's, you know, obviously had a huge hand in it and orchestrating it and everything. But it's a Sony movie. And mm-hmm. it's a Sony movie that's a product of this very unique, very, very successful and lucrative for both sides content sharing arrangement between Disney and Sony and Spider-Man where they can, you know, the, the other movies like Venom and Morbius and all this stuff, Sony's keeping them because they still have the rights until they stop developing this and stuff. And Spider-Verse when they, too, right? And the Spider-Verse stuff. But when they developed, but when they were rebooting Peter Parker Spider-Man movies, they agreed to share so that Spider-Man could be an Avenger, et cetera, et cetera. There was a spirit, a joie de vivre, and a freedom in these three movies, um, as well as an epic scale, ultimately, and an emotional scale that I struggle to think of where it's going to come from in the MCU proper again. Now, that I'm never selling them short. Mm-hmm. And this has been, in many ways, I mean, it's funny to say this about a year where we have five TV shows and at least two or three movies. But was this sort of a throwaway year in the phase five, six, wherever we're at? Well, I, I, I don't see, I don't see the, I don't see the path yet to now that things are broken down to build up to something like this. And I wonder if there's a piece of Kevin Feige that's just like, goddamn, they just, they just drank our milkshake because this was, this was Endgame again, and in some ways some ways kind of better as a movie. And I loved Endgame. Yeah, God laughs at a plan. This was supposed to come after Doctor Strange. And there's a Doctor Strange trailer in the post-credits sequence to this film, and you can see that online now. Uh, It's hard to imagine like a world in which Doctor Strange feels like a satisfying next chapter for this. And I don't mean that... I actually thought Cumberbatch was like pretty, pretty cool in this movie, despite the fact that like everything he has to do is the probably most nonsensical parts of this movie. It's like, I have the MacGuffin in my hand and now Mm -hmm. I will get vanished into another dimension for a while and come back just in the nick of time. You know, like, or or how about when he's like, I'm going to go upstairs for a while while you guys do this. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff is just like, you have to, and it's such a testament to how good this movie is that they like, just, they just burrow through it. Just like with the, the Tony Stark machine that has, cures for everything in it it's it's like you just have to get through that to get to the third act of of holland trying to decide like what to do with his power so let's talk about that let's say i think that's a that's a really good point i felt the same way there is no world where a doctor strange movie it's not that it's equal to this because it's not trying to be you know this is this was billed as the summation of this era and all this stuff but i'm not sure and I am curious to see the, the the Multiverse of Madness movie, but I'm still not sure that Doctor Strange is a solo movie franchise. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the character is odd. I think that Cumberbatch's performance is really interesting, but not necessarily 
the center of something. And it was he's a good foil, as is his whole thing, which is like, well, there's a mirror dimension and I cast some spells with my fingers. And it's as you said, it's like, great. Okay, now please move aside and yeah. let's get to what else is happening because of it. All of this is to say they struck a very unique kind of cinematic gold when they got um, Tom Holland and Zendaya to play these parts. You yeah. know, it's an incredible special effect to be able to cut to these people who exude decency and vibrancy and can literally be the physical manifestation of tweeting through it when it's just like some intergalactic, interdimensional whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, sure, there are North Stars through this because they love each other and I want them to have good lives and not good lives as caped vigilantes, but they want to go to college. And like that, that aspect of it is also what keeps us grounded and true. Yeah, I mean, you think about, and we could start actually mixing in our conversation about Hawkeye here because I don't know that we're going to go like plot point by plot point well, through it. I, because I, I was going to say, you brought up the the Sony and the Disney part of this. I almost feel like someone was like Disney MCU whatever. You guys can have the first forty minutes to set up the multiverse because I know we're supposed to come after this movie that didn't, mm-hmm, and there mm-hmm. things have been delayed a year, and things have been teased and Loki, and then not followed through on, and other shows. So let's just you can introduce this, and then he needs to go into a portal and go away, and these kids have to have their movie, and th- and they they and they and we have to have the movie with the other two Spider Mans and the and the villains, and it needs to just be a Spider Man movie for the rest of the next two hours, basically. That was the most ingenious thing that they did was that they got out of their own way. You see in Hawkeye, like even though I kind of enjoyed the DNA of that show, like a Christmas show in New York City that's like just basically a PG chain black action movie, they just couldn't stop adding and adding and adding and misdirecting and fainting and then setting up, but then pulling back and then being like, great, so... She got the watch, man. Like I'm glad I'm glad that I'm glad that worked out for everybody. I don't know what that means. That has no impact on me. And you compare that, unfairly or not, to some of the payoffs that happen in the Spider-Man movie. And the reason why all of the tricks that Spider-Man pulls or that No Way Home pulls work is because of the time spent. It's because mm-hmm. they didn't just do the Tupac hologram version of bringing back Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. They're characters in this movie. With full presence and lives. And I mean, yeah, look, we should shout out Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, the comedy writers, veterans of like American Dad and Community. Um, they've been right. They wrote the last movie as well. Just kind of a brilliant job, not just because the jokes are legitimately funny and you're excited to see the supporting characters like Tony Revolori's Flash or the, you know, that brief scene in the school where you get J.B. Smoove and Hannibal Burris and oh Star back together again. Yeah. And it's just, it's great and delightful. And the and the quippiness is actually legitimately clever and uplifting and amusing. But structurally, to your point, like the movie begins and it's absolutely um, breathless. Like the camera stuff that John Watts is doing in the beginning, it's like very handheld and room to room and racing and chaos. And I was like, well, what is this? This isn't like MCU house style, which is often very like, stayed and and framed you know it was it was active and jittery and matching the emotional uh action that we're seeing on the screen and then it does the whole like rounding up the villains bit and then we have massive tragedy and then the other spider-men show up you know and it's not as easy as it sounds to be like this is the natural order for the things that we want to do in the movie because the the flip side of that is when Jonathan Igla and his writer's room for Hawkeye and the Marvel executives who sit in the writer's room and everyone else involved. I don't know how it works, but you get the sense that someone came in with a big satchel, like a mail carrier, and dumped it on the table in the writer's room and was like, here are the 19 things the show is going to do. Have fun. Right. And trying to put it together and have it feel like something that someone naturally chose to put together, that's nigh on impossible. But this movie made it seem pretty easy. And I am pretty impressed that we could have these, have, have, have that incredibly emotional scene with Marissa Tomei and, and in the building where she says, I mean, it is, I guess, saying with great power comes great responsibility is like, you know, the the, the sidekick in the McBain part of Simpson sure. saying, I'm going to buy a boat. And it's going to be called to live forever. <laughs> um, but I was genuinely surprised. I didn't know the movie was going to go there, even though that was part of what the theme of the movie was clearly stating, intending to be. 
you know, that some tragedies cannot be avoided, that some things are surprising, but, but cyclical and et cetera, et cetera. To then pivot to Ned's Lolo's apartment where they, he learns magic briefly. And by the way, you guys, I am a cynic. And I'm like, oh, I hope Ned joins the Strange Academy, which is a currently running <laughs> comic book series from Marvel. And he becomes a disciple because I want him in those movies. That's fun. Um, to have it happen that way and have the people, like in my theater, so he pulls in Garfield. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. And it's so bright and light and great. There were people in my theater, and I did not expect this, who started bellowing McGuire. They were bellowing the name Toby McGuire like they were the people who cashed the chips out in the basement of the Chinatown poker dungeon he's been in, in for the in last Molly's decade. Game, yeah. <laughs> they were so excited for him. And then, as to your point, they show up and they are differentiated. Mm-hmm. We understand that to be Peter Parker or Spider-Man is a loose parameters and everyone's going to bring their own thing to it. And again, it didn't cheapen the fact, it didn't cheapen it in any way. Being like, yeah, there are three people, three white dudes who have played this part. What it did was it actually shaded each actor's idiosyncrasies and decision-making and their era. And I was like, that was that Spider-Man for that time. And it's different. And it was fun to see them all together, honestly, and interact. And bizarrely joyful, Yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I think that if it had just been like a force ghost kind of thing, yeah, it, it would have been like, all right. I mean, like, I feel bad that Andrew Garfield had to go through that entire promo tour for Tick, Tick, Boom and Eyes of Tammy Faye. And every time like one of the Jimmy's yeah. on lo- like late shows would be like, so are you in Spider-Man? He'd be like, stop asking me that. I'm not in it. You know, I, I him being kind of and that that actually weirdly fit with the narrative of his participation yes. in Spider-Man where yes. he was like this sacrificial lamb. But the coolest thing about it was that, you know, I have no problem with like these parts being reiterated and sometimes being contemporaneous like i think it's fine that dc is doing what they're doing it's not like Mm -hmm. the joker is not like the like there's not one reading of that character there's not one telling of that story but the thing that was kind of neat about what they did was they were like you can be lots of different people you know like you can be kind of a sensitive sad sack you can also be like a little bit of a wooden you know archetypal like I try to do the right thing like Tobey Maguire guy kind of and you can be Tom Holland yeah exactly and, and, and yeah Garfield it's such a vibrant interesting performance and it really helped it to see it in comparison to the other ones and the, yeah. the idea that he was like because the way those movies were set up and then abandoned that there was a darker turn coming right that he couldn't save Gwen Stacy which is a which is a canonical storyline in the comic books that has only been hinted at in the movies and I guess that was done in those middle movies but never finished and then with such thought and care, these filmmakers were like, let's give that character closure. Let's let him rescue MJ. And I, I mean, that was among my list of 2021's most surprising moments. Uh, no longer dining indoors, probably number one. Number two, that moment, mm-hmm. like hitting me in the solar plexus and having a genuine human emotional reaction to that was got to be in my top five most surprising moments that that landed and I felt it. Like, I thought that was a beautiful gift to a character that prior to sitting down, I didn't care about. Completely agree with you. And also, like, I'm not a Spider-Man scholar and I'm not, like, somebody who rewatches those movies with any frequency. Like, I'll see them if they're on cable, I'll check them out or whatever. But this movie also highlighted the nagging, and I know that this is sort of, like, Monday morning quarterbacking something, but, like, these movies have a villain problem. Like all of these movies have a villain mm-hmm. problem. And it's not because they don't, they can't find somebody who's as evil or as like, you know, sort of powerful as Thanos. When you watch Willem Dafoe in this movie, you're like, Oh yeah, that's what it's supposed to feel like because you're supposed to let a villain get close enough to hurt you. That's that, that, mm-hmm. that has to happen for this, for these stories to like actually connect. If yeah, it's not just a CGI like, blob. I want to rule the world, then you just get into Doctor Evil stuff. But if you have somebody who's like, let me draw you in, let me make a connection with your aunt, mm-hmm. let me be like, I could be saved in a, in a great, you know, mm-hmm. in a perfect world, I could be saved, and then turn hard and not only hurt you with my actions. And shout out to Watts because those fight scenes between Spider Man and and uh, Goblin are actually like pretty brutal. When yes. you watch them in the theater, like they're like punching the shit out of each other, but he's also hurting him with words too. He's like, "It." By the way, it's your fault. Like all this is your fault. <laughs> like that. That's his like. That's his like worst punch to throw. What a great year 
for the older members of our society. Yeah, seriously. Willem Dafoe, 66 years young, taking body blow after body blow, just like, shout out Side Talk, President Joe Byron, you know, <laughs> nearly, nearly 80 years old, Tony Fauci, like this is rewriting yeah. what aging male life It's the year be. of cry macho. For sure. I, I really I really appreciated that. Um, agree with you about Defoe. So many good fucking actors in this movie. I mean, we're, we're, we started by joking about J. Jonah Jameson. I mean, that's, that's, that's J.K., man. This is an Oscar winner just kind of riffing on the margins of the movie. Like, we're not going to talk about Marissa Tomei, probably. That's right. Marissa Tomei. How great. But the I villain stuff- I was reading the, uh, the Wikipedia entry for No Way Home- cited that Marissa Tomei, like not as a condition of returning, but like as part of the reason why she agreed to return was like, I want to make sure that uh, Aunt May's activism gets gets a platform. (laughs) I was like, this is, you she is the fucking best. (laughs) Low-key best shot in the movie is when all the villains are shacked up in Happy Hogan's uh, bachelor pad. And it's like a montage of them making the magic formulas that's going to cure everyone, you know. And they're 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 about to put the the the, the Stark Industries Roomba on Jamie Fox in the background. Oh, the little like nest nest device, yeah. On him, yeah. It's like yeah. check his thermostat in the background of one shot. Tomei is walking down the stairs, burning sage. Yeah, and I I ju- <laughs> I, I love that moment so much, and you, you just have to feel like that was really a collaborative moment between actor and director. He was like, "Yeah, I'm worried about the Stark tech right now. Feel free." But like these little things, it's uh, these little things that are so hard to do. Like, how do you manage all of those egos and get everyone to come back? Like Jamie Fox is an Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like Jamie Fox isn't going to come be in someone else's movie to the degree that he did unless he feels seen, he feels respected, as he should, mm-hmm. and. They gave him some business and they gave him some point of view. And he also was different than the other characters. He was like, I yes. like having these powers. I think I'll take more. You know, like he, they actually did some gradations of what's this person doing here? What, what does this person want from this situation? And, and what was the last time we saw them and what was their arc? Like, you know, the, the, the things that people don't talk about probably with good reason because they don't, they're never justified is the, on-ramp for villains in movies. Mm -hmm. So if you talk about Dr. Octopus in the Spider-Man movies, I mean, I, I, Melina was great. Melina was a great casting choice. I straight up thought he was Dr. Octagon for like, (laughs) and I was just like, Oh, I had that record. Yeah. I was like, I guess I'm just a cool Keith fan, but I, then I was like, would Dr. Octagon just be like a really good MMA fighter? (laughs) At this, this point, is, you said you didn't look at your phone, but that does seem like a little bit of a head digression that you took in the middle yeah, of this I think two so. and a half hour film. Um, but I think what people don't think about, nor necessarily should they, is that in that in the Sam Raimi movie, that was I guess that was two, the Spider Man two the, mm-hmm. uh, with Tobey Maguire, is that you know he's kind of a tragic figure, loses his wife, and he's a haunted scientist, and then he becomes this monster. We don't think about that because who cares? That's the thing that gets us to the fights at the end of that movie. And it's never going to be thought of again because the villain is vanquished. This movie gave you an opportunity to earn that and own it and be like, let's save him. There's nothing inherently bad about him. He's just been a villain. Mm -hmm. And again, Melina, an older man, looking great, just brought like where you just have all these actors delivering on some emotional ballast in places that we are unaccustomed to finding it in movies of this structure. And, you know, because this is an action movie, we're not talking about the fact that, oh, well, there's the first fight on the bridge and then there's the mirror universe thing where he defeats Doctor Strange with math. And it's like, or or the giant thing at the end where it's Spider-Man to Spider-Man. And the reason we're not talking about it, I'm sure there are podcasts and conversations and things that will talk about those things specifically. It's a good thing we're not talking about those. Those are the moments that we checked out and we were like, fun. Mm -hmm. But not check out in a, you know, Hulkbuster Iron Man armor sequence of punching in the middle of the Ultron movie, check out, like, I visually understand what's going on. I respect the creativity and storyboarding that went into this. And I understand that this is part of the fully balanced meal that I'm being served. I didn't bump on any of it. It was well orchestrated. It was well directed. And now let's move on. And they moved on to places that were more valuable than that. And the, the, I don't know if this is the last thing we'll say, but I really, really, obviously Tom Holland will be Spider-Man again. There's more stories to tell. But I love the way the movie ended. Yeah, it's it's amazing. <laughs> These movies end 44 times. They usually have to do like five bad codas and then set up yep. six other movies. 
And they just nailed it. That donut shop scene was amazing. It, it was a wonderful human moment, great performances, very sweet and melancholy and emotional and left you the way these movies should, which is hoping for more, but not necessarily expecting that or thinking we deserve it. You know, that because you know how this movie ends? You know what, you know what it is at the end? It's fucking Spider-Man. That's mm-hmm. what was so great about the way it ended. Spider-Man, this movie retconned Spider-Man in the MCU in a way that felt natural. So that at the end of it, he's just a young guy living in an apartment with a suit. He is not Iron Man. He's not like Jeremy going to Strong. MIT. Yeah. He's not ready to be married. He's just he's just Jeremy Strong going audition to audition, hoping it finally comes together he's for him. He's got one Dree suit, and that's it. And then he goes out into the world. And, and that's a very strange place. I, 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 I'm really glad you said what you said. Yeah, there can be another Spider-Man movie, but there doesn't need to be because it, it just feels like that's where the character lives in our imagination when he's back on the shelf for a while. Mm-hmm. And I, I really respected that. Let's talk a little bit about Hawkeye. Uh, yeah. I think that rather than getting into the blow-by-blow, blow, because Rayoverse has done such a good job over the last weeks, couple weeks, over the entire season and, and everything, getting into like the real nitty-gritty of like, how come you can, and spoilers for Hawkeye, like, how come you can shoot an arrow at Kingpin? Like, I, I know that those things are answered in various places, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, if you want to talk about that, we can. I think my main note to this, to this series, was, I think for, it would be wise if Marvel maybe it tried to abandon the element of mystery for a little while. And I know that that is an element of comic book storytelling, but you answered this, you, you, you tell me, I don't remember that being the principal reason why I read comic books was to discover no. this mystery character or crazy twist that they were going to do. I I read it to spend time with characters and to watch them go on increasingly in crazy adventures. But they have now wrapped so many of these shows around this idea that we need to keep, stay tuned to find out next week why this happened or who this person is that they're referring to only by pronouns because, you know, or that they're only calling the boss or something like that. And and I think it's actually really hurting these shows because I think there's a really good show in Hawkeye. Like, I, I honestly do. I think that there's a yeah. very charming, funny, action-packed show somewhere in there that then they laden down with you know, setting up like Echo and setting up Kingpin and maybe there's this watch and what who's Eleanor working for and what was her motivation and is is Jack someone? And then you get to the end and it's just like they rush so fast through the, the stuff plus they have to have four action scenes. And then you you wind up being like, I just would have like honestly like doubled my Disney Plus subscription for a version of this show that was Renner, Steinfeld, and Yelena. Or two out of those three. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's an increasingly cheap trick that I am concerned about. They have gamed our current TV economy brilliantly. They understand how, and you know, we are we are part of it. You know, but how this the culture of if you're going to do the weekly, what how do you how do you weaponize it? Mm-hmm. How do you get people talking? How do you get people doing the work for you, spackling the story holes for you by imagining bigger and bigger things? The font in the title, the, the font in the subject heading of a Screen Rant post about Wilson Fisk is going to be, it's, I mean, it's going to be the same size whether audience cares or not, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I do not mean to discredit or disrespect people who are very invested in either Kingpin as an important villain in the Marvel Universe or Vincent D'Onofrio's very, very uh, choice-laden performance as that character. People who are very invested in the legitimizing of the Netflix Marvel television shows, something that was continued potentially in the Spider-Man movie when Charlie Cox's Matt Murdock shows up, not as Daredevil, but as the same character. Mm -hmm. A moment I loved that felt earned and was, by the way, that's what would happen in fun comic books. The lawyer would be Matt Murdock, and then that would be it. Like that's- Quickly disposed of. He was not like, I need to have a Daredevil fight some point during the show. Super fun. A great moment. Earned. Great. Satisfying. I was totally flummoxed by this. It added nothing to any version of the story other than to further Marvel Television's goals to make Echo someone we care about, to have a surprise to fuel the internet or whatever. 
the fact that the penultimate episode ended with a screen grab of a cell phone of a returning actor with Jeremy Renner ADR'd later to say, Kingpin, was really uh, the nadir for me of, mm-hmm. of this year of Marvel TV. It was really a bummer. I agree with you. I think that if anything, if we're going to link the conversations, tell us the stories about the people we care about and then the surprises can come later. I mean, I think everybody knows. I, I'm sure that it's hard to see the forest for the trees at times when you're in the in the weeds and you're in the online conversation. But someone, thank God, steering that Spider-Man No Way Home ship through the rocky seas of production and the COVID and everything understood that it didn't matter how many actors they threw into it or how many villains they brought back or Spider-Men if we didn't care about the main character, main characters. Mm -hmm. If we didn't just, like we were saying, if we didn't just want to see Tom and Zendaya succeed, it doesn't matter who you throw at it. And I think that that has gone topsy-turvy at least so far, and you know, especially in something like Hawkeye, which to your point, if this was the Kate Bishop show, awesome. If this was the Kate Bishop and Yelena show, even better. If this was the Kate Bishop and Jeremy Renner show, fine. But it was all of them, plus five more shows. And that is something that's going to be on your TV every week, but I don't know if it's something that feels satisfying. I felt really, it was the opposite for Spider-Man for me. I did not, I, I just felt kind of crummy watching the show, honestly. Yeah, you know, you realize like about 20 minutes in when you notice where you are in the, uh, if, if you're like, it's almost like watching the plane cross the country on the screen in front of you while you're on the plane, you're like, oh, we're only in Denver. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we're still fighting on this ice rink. Like, we're not going anywhere for a really long time. You know, I think that, what where's your head at when it comes to do you think that they are taking advantage of what they could be doing with these shows or do you think they're doing exactly what they set out to do with them? I think that they are doing exactly what they set out to do with them in terms of delivering product of a certain consistent quality. And I don't even mean that, in a, I'm not trying to be shady. I mean, I think that the baseline, the floor of quality of these, of these shows is consistent and not particularly low. Um, they're advancing the stories and they're having people talk about them and they're feeding the Disney Plus pipeline. Those are all, and they're keeping the, all the stars paid and involved. Those were the goals. I think then one step further, the creative teams, I think, are feeling pretty good about some of their successes and pretty frustrated about some of their misses, you know? And I think that, like, WandaVision, I'm sure that if you talk to Jack Schaefer, like, she might have some things that she'd like to do over, but generally, like, that was a positive thing. People mm-hmm. really liked it. It launched the service or that the Marvel on the service really well. I think, you know, we talked to Malcolm Spellman about Falcon and Winter Soldier. I think he feels really good about the things he got into a show that, as we said at the time, was happening whether he got involved or not. This is the one, and I think, you know, I, I loved Loki. I thought Michael Waldron yeah. did a great job. This is the one, and not to pick on Jonathan Igler or his staff or whatever, I, 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 don't, see, I don't see how this was possible to succeed, you know? I, I don't, I, I just don't see it. And I think that um, I'm very curious in the year ahead how this plays out because there's something prestigious and something fun about getting to play in the sandbox. But I do not get the sense that the people playing in the sandbox are unsupervised at any moment of their play. Sure. And you can feel it. Yeah. I. <laughs> when you watch the Doctor Strange 2 trailer and it opens up and and Cumberbatch goes to see Elizabeth Olsen in that orchard. And yeah. he's like, I'm not here to talk about Westview. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. man, <laughs> aren't you glad that that paid off? Aren't you glad that like you were able to like, cause like, this is what, the, this is the grand project, right? Is trying to yeah. connect what's happening on the shows to the movies. Now, whether, how they differentiate those things, I, I don't know about going forward. I thought Van and Charles and Jomi and Steve had a really interesting conversation on Midnight Boys about like, they either need to do less in the six episodes or they need to make them 10 episode shows. You know, like they need to like stretch out and just tell the story they want to tell or they need to make these mega movies that tell one story really well. And right now they're getting a little bit caught in between and I think you feel that most in Falcon in this. Yeah, I think like, why was the pizza dog in the show? It was there because no, that was No, I mean, was why something... was Tony Dalton in this show? I mean, forget the pizza. The pizza dog is just yeah. like a background thing. But like, what, no, why but it... I mean, like, that's a little fan service. But like, what, but why? Because I guess some people were expecting it. So that got thrown in. It was fun. It was one of the things that was dumped on the table. Tony, Tony Dalton playing a character that I think's name suggests someone, I forget the name of the character now, um, 
who in that Matt Fraction, David I.S. storyline that I love so much is important. Like there was a circus performer with that name who taught Clint everything he knows. So I was so that was a feint for fans and a misdirect, but it doesn't mean anything. It's the mm-hmm. shape of a story point, but it doesn't actually add to anything. And and, and it's just you you end up with these scenes like like great actors like Vera Farmiga and Vincent D'Onofrio being like, you know, Mr. Fisk, Miss Bishop. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just what what are we doing? Like we're just we're just going through the motions of this scene that has to is, happen for the Kingpin next nine things to happen. Is in the book? I, I don't remember. I haven't read it in a minute. But like that, he he figures into that corner of the world. He sure. always is around or referenced. I think um, I I think that that's a great point that they just need to do do better with less. They can, you know, and that's what's so odd about it. Like the, the great episode of Loki that was just Loki, a character we've been watching for over a decade, and Sophie, a character we met one episode before in Atlanta. CGI, LED, whatever sound stages, but I was really compelled because I love the performances and I it was very clear where each character was coming from in that conflict. It's not it's not complicated, but it is complicated in practice when you have all these different things chirping in your ear. I'll say that because we skipped last week, the Florence Pugh macaroni and cheese scene mm-hmm. with Haley Steinfeld. And let, let me begin by saying, I really like Haley Steinfeld. Yeah. I'm really glad she's playing Kate Bishop. I'm very excited for her future in the MCU without Renner as such a mega downer in every scene. I don't mean Renner, the character of Clint Barton with all his tattoos and baggage. Like, let's let her be a young hero. And I think that's going to be great. She's a lot of fun. But you know, I am, I love the Stadio podcast, but I am not a big uh, international football fan. Yeah. But never before in my life have I understood relegation (laughs) like I did in that scene. (laughs) Where I was like, Haley Seinfeld is like the star of this show and she's good. But all of a sudden, like Manchester City walked in and she looks like, what, what like Sheffield, Wolverhampton? Yeah, Crystal right. City, I, Crystal Palace? Like, Chris, Crystal Palace is a good example, yeah. Like, thank God, I was going to keep naming like C-tier teams until I got one that, that was okay. Um, Florence Pugh fucking gets it, man. She's a great performer. She's been given the parameters of a really fun and good character. And she's like, let's go. Let's just go. Let's just mix it up and scrap, you know? And all of a sudden, the show took flight. And I was Mm -hmm. like, this is awesome. This is great. But, oh, wait a second. This show isn't called The Continuing Adventures of the Second Black Widow. It's Hawkeye. And we still haven't even serviced the other two Hawkeyes. So, I don't know. Maybe the way, maybe the way fans are, I mean, look, People are just enjoying it because it's free content. Not a big deal. But maybe one of the ways fans are getting through this is that they are, like anyone with anything that they are long-term fans of, whether it's like a sports team or a comic book, like you treasure the parts you like. Mm -hmm. And then you're happy that it's still going. You know, and that's kind of how I feel about the Sixers season. You know, like, well, it's going to keep going. You really like listening to podcasts about them. but (laughs) I do, I do. About the NBA in general. Uh, let's wrap up the Marvel stuff there. We can get into Station Eleven for a bit. Uh, you know, we went really, really deep on the first three episodes. I think these two episodes, four and five, are the most like traditional and non-traditional episodes that we've seen so far in a lot of ways. I mean, those first three, two by Hero Mirai, Mirai directed by Hero Mirai, and one by directed by Jeremy Puzwell, like are this incredible like offering of like everything the show might do and all can mm-hmm. do. And then I think four and five. It doesn't necessarily close the aperture because you've got one that is uh, largely based about on the traveling uh, symphony, and then this the the fifth episode is sort of what happens in between day one and day twenty, and mm-hmm. and what other people or outside year, year twenty yeah. year twenty and what other people outside of Kirsten are are doing. The fourth episode, you know, it introduces the uh, the this show's commitment to golf really charms me quite a bit. So they they arrive at this golf course. Uh, they're having traveling symphony arrives at this golf course where uh, David Cross, who used to be the theater director for the company, has has retired, and um, they find out basically that this mysterious character, this mysterious man that they met in episode the two, the prophet, has been essentially like raising a cult army of children and stealing kids along the way. For what purpose we don't know, but he is like kind of emerges as like the evil in. Uh, this show. Here's why I love this show. You get that 
the mystery or whatever of that in episode four, it is answered in episode five. In totality, mm-hmm. like you mm-hmm. get the explanation for who he is, you get the origin story, you get the nuances of the character, you get so much depth because that depth is like shown in compositions of shots where it's just like, oh yeah, the reason why this is happening is because he downloaded X number of websites before, you know, X number of Wikipedia pages before they shut down the internet. And you get this kind of wildly imaginative depiction of a world. I think the thing that struck me is the fifth episode, the the one set at the airport, is the first one where it feels like a jolt of something different than the ones before tonally. Did you pick up on that? Yes. I. Um, it's interesting. I think both of us probably want to focus more on five because it's such an exceptional hour of television. But I... I, I appreciate that the two are linked. I like the idea of a story, of a question asked and answered. And I just think, broadly speaking, this is actually in some ways connected to what we were saying uh, Marvel needs to do a little bit better, which is, I don't think I'm alone in saying that pretty early on in episode five, I understood that Tyler is the prophet, that, like, that that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the origin story of the show's villain, and now we understand how he has the comic book and why he's connected and why, you know, it, it's TV, or and it was a novel. Like, all these people kind of know each other. That's fine. My point in saying that is that it doesn't matter that I wasn't surprised. I was satisfied. And I feel like that's a key distinction in storytelling that, I, that is increasingly uh, lost. Mm-hmm. Don't protect a secret, because a secret without meaning is worthless, let the story unfold. And when some people latch onto it, they latch onto it. The point is you don't want them to unlatch. And if you're just hiding the ball always as a storyteller, because all your ideas are so good and precious and they need to be held close until people de- are deserving of them, no one's going to wait around for it. No one's going to wait around for it. And I think that that, watching these two episodes is when, for me, the show clicked up the gear that had me put it as the number one. Because all of a sudden I realized, A, this story can do anything, go Mm -hmm. in any direction. We can focus on any moment, any character. And it's so well cast, whether it's David Wilmot who plays Clark or David Cross, who I love seeing in this part, you know, you're surprised to see him. And it's just a perfect, perfect usage of someone who is, you know, it's very idiosyncratic comedian and performer. Um, So it, it, it can, it can jump. It can tell bottle episodes. It can go to airports and go to any point in this. It can tell comedy and horror and emotion all at once. I love that wide open sense of thrill and possibility, but that the constant is that sense of reasonable, generous, but firm control. Mm-hmm. The tone and the the w- the manner in which the story is being delivered to you is consistent, and I trust it. You know, and that's a really really sweet spot for a TV show to be. I, you can do anything, but I know what I'm going. Yeah. You're going to surprise me, but you're not going to shock me. It's the safety. I, I don't know what's. Co- Safety surprise thing. It's like, yeah, I, know, I don't know what's coming, but I feel confident that I'm going to be interested in it. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, the creator of this show, Patrick Somerville, but being part of the Damon Lindelof coaching tree. And mm-hmm. I just thought that this was about as good as you can get when it comes to the thing that Lost perfected, which was like, here is this person who is a supporting character in the world where Matthew Fox is in every shot of this show. Mm-hmm. But we're going to give them their own episode now and their own arc, and they're going to feel as important to the viewer now as the person that they are trained by every other television show to be focusing on and giving David Wilmot the, this Clark character, this, this, this arc and this, this moment in the airport where he kind of, uh, you know, he extrapolates something that seems almost like a throwaway character development of like, he's the CEO whisperer kind of thing and makes it into, Oh, this is how you would kind of sound like, a guy who is like, this is my moment to become a leader after a lifetime playing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah. Yeah. And um, also it doesn't, let's look, let, let's keep our eye on something else that that's so consistently great about the show. Let's look at the run times. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the fact that this is old school hour long TV. The episodes are like 45, 46 minutes. I love that. And I also am in awe of it because to take, as the show does in episode five, Severn City Airport, a, a supporting character, or supporting characters, because we've met Caitlin Fitzgerald's character before briefly, I think in episode three, and create a whole new world for them where we are wholly invested in them and understand the 
the contours of their new reality, where they might be sleeping, where they might be using the bathroom, where they might go for solitude, mm-hmm. the possibilities of it, the desperate hopelessness of it. And to and then to wrap it all up in 46 minutes or whatever, that's remarkable. It's remarkable. And 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 you're you're bouncing the whole time. Like there are moments in it, and again, this is this speaks to tone, where you know, when he's, he's having like early on when he's just having the drinks, he's just helping himself to some drinks, right? Like, yeah, that's not a bad moment. You got to find an okay moment in the middle of this, you know, when he suddenly takes leadership and he, he's validated, even if it's in an apocalypse, it's not a bad moment for the guy. And we feel that, you know, you don't, it's, it, it's, I, I imagine it may have been difficult in the crafting of the show where, whether it's in the writer's room or you're getting notes or whatever, there's a constant drumbeat of other voices saying, yes, but what about, yes, but remember, you know, where someone might be saying, yeah, the world is ending. The TV, the news is on these TVs. Can he smile here? Right. And it's a legitimate question. You want those kinds of questions being asked when you're in the thick of it, but you need to have a steady voice or a steady, um, you know, a steady narrative uh, uh, anchor that's just like, yes, but that happens too. We're allowed. We're allowed. We're not going to lose the big picture when we zoom in on these little life-giving details. There's also like an element that is appropriate for the character. Clark is a theater person. I mean, he is somebody yes. who's grown up and essentially spent his adult life in the theater. His perspective or his POV on how the apocalypse would happen wouldn't necessarily be theatrical. And there is an element to, and Core Jefferson wrote this episode, the the Severn City one. And Lucy Cherniak directed it. Yeah, give them. that is uh, a little bit more turned up in the volume than the say the first episode which is like this is really how this feels you know like mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. the you hear every cough here's the text message that didn't go through here's the race to the supermarket it's and a lot of people who watched that first episode have been like this is a little too fucking much for me mm-hmm. the fifth episode essentially does the replay of that and while there are chilling moments like the the plane that lands that never deboards and everything I think that they play up the elements of like the fake Homeland Security guard absconding with us, a, a women's soccer team to start like a, a new society in Florida or something that is like just funny enough to release the pressure. You know what I mean? Because I don't know that you could go through the here's what the apocalypse looks no, like from I, the other person's I, perspective. I also think that the one, one among the many things that the last two years have taught us is that, you know, it. it Things happen gradually. It's a slippery slope, you know. It's not all doom and gloom because we are very, very good at negotiating with ourselves and with reality and trying to, even the most pessimistic among us, trying to put a positive spin on it or giving ourselves a break or whatever. For many of us, like last March, it's like, well, you know, okay, I guess I'm just not, I'm going to wear sweatpants now, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll, I'll allow myself that. That's kind of an echo of when Clark's like, oh, I found some psychedelic drugs or E or whatever that is. Like, I I can do that in the middle of the day, in the middle of the airport, because why can't I, you know? Okay, so that's the way it's going to be now. Um, That kind of minute-to-minute calculus of I need to maintain some baseline sanity or familiarity, but also can I tiptoe this direction or that direction? Can I kidnap a soccer team and fly to Florida? Okay, I mean, sure. People are going to reveal themselves in in interesting ways. Um, The We did sort of, gloss over four. I mean, I, I don't want to give short shrift to just moments like when Alex sprints through a literal minefield, yeah. you know, or then what happens at the end, which is brilliantly directed and staged and totally horrifying. And you you address it. I think that it's been probably unsurprising, but interesting to see, or at least note some reaction. You know, we raved about the show before people have had a chance to see more of it than the first three. Some people with good reason, especially this month, um, really just bump, like they just can't do it. And yeah, I, sure. I, 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 I get that. But what another one of the reasons why we are so, I think, speaking for both of us, so deeply invested in, in love with the show is the, the shades of it. The horror of the end of four is a very different horror than the creeping dread of one. Mm-hmm. You know, there is there is such unspeakable violence and sadness lurking at the margins of the show, but it's not ever the focus. It's all present at the same time. And I feel like going back to that point I was making before about like, how do we continue to tell the overstory while telling you the individual story? That's what trips up a lot of these series. I think that's what Damon does best, honestly. I mean, when we talked about Watchmen, we talked about, 
we could talk about the overarching themes about systemic racism in this country or what America means or what comic book storytelling should be. But we could also just talk about the episode where Tim Blake Nelson is sad, you know, yeah. like that character. Yeah. Both are valid memories that loom large in our experience of the show. And I think that's true here as well. It's a really well put. We can wrap it up there. Uh, we are back on, I think, Monday with our mailbag episode. And then we're going to take a little time off for the holidays, but we'll be back early in the uh, in the new year to get back to all the pop culture stuff. That, get back to doing what we do best. I know, Chris. just watching TV we- and talking about it. Or sometimes just talking about it, not yeah. watching it. Let's be honest. <laughs> that might be what we truly do best. Have a, a healthy and happy and safe holidays, Branskis. Happy holidays, everybody. Stay safe. <laughs>